Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live at nhtalkradio.com, where our shows are archived for your binge listening pleasure. And we are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so you can find us any time of the day or night, anywhere in the world, if you're not confined to your home. And I'm really pleased to welcome Matt Robeson to Off the Record. He's been a frequent guest. He is the author of a moreperfectunionforum.com, a blog devoted to a deeper dive into politics. And he writes for alternate.org on the web. And he is now joining Off the Record as a co-host of this tremendous show. And we're going to see what happens and how things work. Matt Robeson, welcome to your new role as co-host of Off the Record. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. What a calm, calm, wonderful voice you have. You actually have a voice made for radio. Unlike me, who's got a face made for radio, you actually look pretty good on video, but uh, you, have a, you have a good radio voice, Matt Robeson. Where did that come from? Well, I appreciate it. I actually did host a jazz and blues radio show in college, which, uh, I don't know, maybe that's some kind of a precursor of training here. Well, it, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty good training. <laughs> you know, when I was in Congress, I always used to joke uh, that I wanted, uh, I, I always wanted my own TV show. I just never thought it was going to be uh, me all alone on the floor of the house in the middle of the night with nobody in the house on C-SPAN. Um, but that was another time. And here we are. Uh, and, you know, Matt, this week has uh, been one of the most surreal experiences, I think, that any of us have ever lived through in our lives, because the world has changed. Things have changed completely in the last week. I mean, what what was going on last Friday is so last Friday. Uh, it's it. I don't remember uh, rarely having ever lived through anything quite so dramatic as the escalation of uh, the changes in our lives uh, due to the coronavirus. Yeah, last week was a long year. It's interesting because in both of our professional experiences, we have uh, ex experienced crises uh, that would seem to be at least the, the nearest close comparison. My uh, first experience working on Capitol Hill came uh, a few weeks after 9-11, and uh, I started my new job. And uh, two days later, my office was one of the four in the U.S. House office buildings that were found to have anthrax spores in it. And so we ended up working remotely for many months, uh, and going through Cipro treatments and all of the other uh, protocols that went along with that. And of course, you came to Congress and were part of the financial rescue uh, during the meltdown of the financial system uh, 11 years ago. So uh, there are some points of comparison here, but I agree with you. This it, it, It's not totally unprecedented, but this feels like a, a, a whole other ball of wax. 
It does. I have to say, it, it was quite a a wake up call. It was it was an introduction to Congress 101 for me when I arrived in early 2007 uh, with the financial crisis um, basically brewing and on its way, and um, it was it, the full brunt of it occurred, of course, during. Uh, my first term in Congress, and and obviously the economic meltdown, the fin- global financial meltdown, um, is something that we are also seeing uh, here in with the coronavirus. But the combination of an economic crisis, which we're uh, going to experience if we're not already experiencing it in terms of the immediacy of it in the United States um, is combined in this case with a health crisis. And so it really is a kind of double, a double whammy for the, uh, the American people and the globe. Um, in, in, in the case of the financial meltdown, uh, we needed to uh, talk about rescuing the banks uh, in this uh, financial uh, and health meltdown, we need to talk about rescuing the people. Um, and to that end, uh, the Senate, uh, with Majority Leader Mitch McConnell of uh, the Republican from Kentucky, uh, released a huge economic stimulus bill to fight the coronavirus fall economic fallout. Uh, but the bill um, had has detractors. It it, it's big, but there are a lot of people who don't think that it's aimed at the right in the right places. Uh, and McConnell is getting grief from both the left and the right. The central element of the plan is to make direct cash payments to many Americans. Now, there are some conservative Republicans who are simply opposed to cash payments entirely. Well, there are other uh, Republicans who warned that the plan was essentially penalizing low-income households because of the design of the plan. The president had expressed support for um, uh, cash payments, uh, but he has also shifted his approach numerous times. You've got Lindsey Graham. Um, uh, voicing outright opposition to the plan. You've got Democrats concerned, as well as some Republicans concerned, that the plan does okay by the middle class. It seems to do okay by corporations uh, because we've got businesses struggling to pay their bills. They're laying off workers. You've got a travel industry and airlines that have been hit hard. Restaurants have closed. But a, a lot of people feel that the hundreds of billions of dollars that McConnell wants to send to the American people, which would be $1,200 for adults, for many families, $500 for child, uh, per child, um, and $2,400 for uh, families filing jointly, um, would, 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 however, not be at the same level for the very poorest families theoretically, those who need the most help, uh, because it would be tied um, to the level of your federal income tax liability. So 
This is a plan that is fraught with problems. And one thing Lindsey Graham has said that that I agree with is that folks don't, you know, a one-time check is is okay, but what people really need is going to be income because from the medical standpoint, what I've heard, and you're you've got a doctor in the house, Robeson, so you can tell me uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but there are reports that that say the peak of these infections that we're going to see are not going to be seen for 45 to 60 days, and that the effects of this effort to contain, mitigate, deal with the coronavirus could last for months. In that, in, in that scenario, what does a one-time uh, check do for people? Well, it's a great question. I think that there's there's a lot to unpack, and all of this is moving quickly. So the caution here is that since people consume audio content these days on kind of a rolling basis from home and, and over podcasts, the situation may have evolved uh, from the time that we're recording this on Friday the 20th. Uh, but the base of the plan, the core of the plan of making some kind of direct cash payments in concept is broadly supported. And that's that's a good thing. There is some basic economic Keynesian stimulus justification for taking this kind of approach. As you noted, there are some detail issues that are consequential and do need to be worked out. I'd also point out that a core part of the base plan that's been put forward is a $300 billion program for small businesses uh, through an interruption loan program. That seems like a really critical element and the kind of thing that, to your point, could have rolling benefits if this crisis continues uh, through the summer, through the fall, which it does seem, we don't know, but it does seem that there's a reasonable probability that that could happen. Ezekiel Emanuel, uh, who is a uh, public health expert and the brother of uh, Rahm Emanuel, uh, wrote a piece of the New York Times this week that was very helpful in laying out his view, the probability that the crisis could unfold in waves. Uh, we could see peaks and valleys. And so, I think that the way that the political leadership of the country and the public at large needs to think about this is in that way, that we may need an infusion of government action now on the economic front, and that may have to be repeated. We may have to redose the economy three or four more times. The thing that I think this package does not touch on is the medical side. And as you noted, that's where the peak now seems to be uh, building momentum. And we're beginning to see some reports of significant shortages of medical equipment that are critical for keeping medical personnel safe as they provide care. That's where I suspect the focus is going to need to turn immediately, including a surge in ventilator manufacturing, mask uh, glove and gown manufacturing uh, and provision. So one of the things that the president uh, did was essentially um, he put us on a wartime footing uh, with calling calling in uh, defense, essentially 
um, defense authorization resources to call in the military, which uh, the DOD has said that they are releasing stockpiles of medical equipment. Um, the president's actions uh, finally called on American industry to begin to change over to producing uh, medical supplies. And here in New Hampshire, the governor of New Hampshire, Governor Sununu, uh, announced an emergency health care uh, relief fund of $50 million to provide infusions of cash for uh, hospitals who may be struggling here in New Hampshire because we're facing a critical shortage of both supplies and beds at the state level. Um, here in New Hampshire, as of this morning, there were 43 uh, cases confirmed of uh, COVID-19. 1,400 tests had been run. There were 800 more awaiting results. Uh, Rockingham County seems to be one of the higher concentrations in the state, uh, but we're, uh, we're seeing it uh, all over, including, by the way, a doctor up in Conway, uh, an unnamed doctor, but a doc up in Conway, apparently um, has been diagnosed uh, as positive. Um, so the, one of the challenges that we've seen is the way in which federal and state coordination has taken quite a bit of time to get itself together. Um, it's, a, it's been um, a, a, a real challenge uh, from the point of view of governors to get the kind of coordinated uh, and clear response that they need from the federal government. Yeah, that's been one of the real tragedies of the way this has been handled. On a conference call with governors earlier this week, the president essentially said, you're on your own. He actually literally said, don't expect the federal government to locate resources for you. You go out and find them yourselves. Well, what a nightmare in the middle of a national and international crisis to have 50 governors trying to each run around with no coordination, trying to locate essential medical supplies, not to mention all the other considerations that unfold on the state and local level when it comes to first responders, public safety, um, essential items, uh, and securing supply chains for things like food uh, and uh, essential living items. So, yes, that has been one of the real vulnerabilities that's been unmasked, and there's been some really insightful reporting over the last few days about the fact that there have been multiple preparation scenarios run uh, in the federal government, including one right uh, after President Trump took office and one about a year ago that coincidentally uh, tried to model a virus like this that 110 million Americans contracted. And both of those exercises revealed exactly these kinds of vulnerabilities, lack of preparation, lack of ability to roll up a coordinated response, and absolutely nothing was done. As a matter of fact, the response was the opposite of helpful uh, as the president fired some of the key preparation and planning personnel uh, at the top of the, the federal level. So uh, it is really revealing uh, just how much of a difference 
strong leadership and governmental competence makes at a time like this. And unfortunately, the message from the federal government thus far has been, everyone figure it out, you're kind of on your own. This is Off the Record on WKXL AM and FM with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson now co-hosting. Uh, we are on uh, podcasts at Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can find us on the web at nhtalkradio.com, where our shows are streamed live, where we are archived for your binge listening pleasure. For all you folks who are housebound now and uh, staying at home, washing your hands, keeping your social distance, um, you can you can binge listen to all the past shows, um, some fun, some serious, uh, uh, on all kinds of subjects. Uh, lately, Matt Robeson and I have been diving into politics together, uh, which we're going to continue to do after this break to hear from the sponsors who are keeping our station on the air. So don't go away, folks. We'll be back after this. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXL AM and FM streamed live at nhtalkradio.com. Uh, and we're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes for those of you who are working by computer or smartphone or iPad and want to plug in and listen to some interesting, interesting discussions that take somewhat of a deeper dive into politics. Uh, Matt Robeson is joined as co-host. Uh, Matt and I know each other well. He's been a frequent guest of late on Off the Record. Uh, Matt is an experienced Capitol Hill guy, was chief of staff in my congressional office, a fellow who knows policy and understands the deeper, deeper dynamics of politics from, from way back. You know, Matt, one of the things I just uh, was interested in hearing your take on is that all of a sudden, the discussions and the politics of socialism versus capitalism seem to have taken a back seat. All of a sudden, Republicans are talking about making cash payments and bailouts to the American people, something which I recall, and you may recall from our time uh, on the Hill, that was a, a no a, a, a no go. It was an absolute forget about it. It was it was um, take, take, you can take your bailout and shove it up. You know it was it was nowhere. And now the Republicans are are scrambling to put a cash bailout in place. The Democrats would prefer to see that it uh, that that bailout goes to the people and not corporations. But President Trump, President Trump, the, the Trumpty Dumpty, the great orange Cheeto, has, has come up with the ultimate socialist idea. He is talking about and has floated the idea of a government takeover of corporations, a government, a government takeover. That's right, folks. You heard it here. 
a government takeover of corporations. What, what is he talking about? He is talking about the federal government taking a stake in private companies. Um, he thinks it's a way to protect taxpayer investments in firms and ensuring taxpayers potentially benefit when a company recovers. But that approach is a little bit controversial. I'm wondering whether anybody in the Republican pantheon is actually paying attention to that kind of proposal, because I can't, I can't imagine anybody who calls himself a Republican president talking about taking essentially in, investing in pri having the government invest in private companies. That kind of sounds like socialism. Well, it's interesting, as you point out, that we've entered a time where clearly, you know, look, Mitch McConnell, Senator McConnell, the Republican Senate leader, the majority leader of the Senate, has made clear for a long time that his top priority is his own partisan agenda. The, he came out and said that the number one priority when President Obama was elected was to make him a one-term president. Nothing about the good of the country, nothing about serving the people, nothing about serving his constituents. It was about making President Obama a one-term president. And the flip side of that has now kind of come to the fore in the last few weeks that it's become apparent that we are going to need an unprecedented level of stimulus to keep the economy going. And I'm not trying to make this an overtly partisan statement about McConnell or Trump or the Republican Party, but I am confident that the politics of this has certainly entered the minds of the people putting forward, as we were discussing in the first segment, what is a classic Keynesian stimulus of putting money directly into people's hands, and in fact was the centerpiece of Andrew Yang's presidential campaign. And it is kind of interesting from a, from a larger standpoint, it used to be, at least the concept was, that your political identity, your party, would follow from your ideology, perhaps your views on policy. And that script has flipped in the last 15 or 20 years as we've entered this phase in American politics of tribal politics, of negative partisanship. Now your ideology and your policy follow from your political identity. Just look at Republicans and trade policy. Republicans have, on, as a matter of principle, for a long time, generally been the party of free trade. When the leader of their party was determined in 2016 through their nomination process and announced that he had a very different view on trade, all of a sudden, the Republican position on trade flipped. And you're seeing the same thing happening with the policy you were alluding to about the federal government taking a stake in private companies. It just goes to show that nowadays, especially with this president, ideology, policy, they're all flexible. It's all about what team you're on first, not necessarily the principle of what you believe in or the prescription that you think is best on economic grounds. Well, you know, one of the, one of the places that the kind of traditional separation between Democrats and Republicans is evident is in the proposals that are on the table from the Senate Republicans 
uh, where uh, legislation has $50 billion in loans and loan guarantees for airlines, $8 billion for air carriers, $150 billion for other, quote, eligible uh, businesses. Um, and the Democrats are demanding that uh, any firms that, that receive bailout funding uh, re put reforms in that Democrats have long sought um, immediately, which include a $15 minimum wage and, and an end to stock buybacks. The GOP, uh, the grand old party, insists that their proposals mean that no officers uh, or employees of firms who receive emergency loans um, will receive uh, an increase in compensation above $425,000 until after March 1 of 2022. So um, uh, we, are, we are seeing some of the of traditional lines of Republicans um, helping big business, Democrats looking to help small businesses and, 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 and slam through some long needed reforms that uh, really create ideological fault lines along with this stimulus. And at the same time, you had Rand Paul, who basically held up, uh, held up any action on this for almost a week, single-handedly, as, um, as the Senate can do. So there, and a, and a lot of folks are, are, are looking at uh, the president and seeing um, that he turns his eye towards what's good for the president and what's good for his reelection uh, in the same breath or before he's breathing anything about relief for the American people. Um, now, you know, the interesting, some of the interesting uh, polling that I've just seen um, shows that a majority of Americans are approving of the way President Trump has been handling the crisis, despite the fact that many folks um, are seeing a too little, too late approach of an, a fractured uh, approach at the top, which uh, which which de which demeaned and diminished the possibility of the just the kind of challenge that we're seeing now. Who downplayed the risks? Who said this thing would be over? Who did not take? Uh, the kind of action that they could have taken when they should have taken it. Um, so politics, uh, you know, you'd like to say that in a national emergency like this, politics stop at the water's edge. But politics are very much alive in what we're seeing both at the White House and now playing out in the Senate. They are. And I think that this is an area where Democrats need to be really careful. There was a, an interesting article put forward uh, in Politico by Michael Grunwald, who was arguing that right now, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats, in his words, have Trump over a barrel. They hold the leverage. And they were drawing a historical analogy, uh, Grunwald was in the, in the piece, to the situation in 2009 with the financial meltdown. And he pointed out that at the time, in order to get a stimulus through the, the Congress, they needed 60 votes to break a Republican filibuster in the Senate. There were only 57 Democratic senators, and that meant Barack Obama needed three Republicans to vote for a stimulus bill. So 
what ended up happening was that Rahm Emanuel, the president's chief of staff at the time, ended up going around hat in hand, literally asking, what will it cost me to get your vote? And he went to Arlen Specter, the Republican at the time, senator from Pennsylvania, and Specter said, I need $10 billion for the National Institutes of Health, which Greenwald points out, put a very specific dollar figure on his vote. And the point was that Republicans felt no compunctions whatsoever about using their leverage at the time to extract concessions and insert the kinds of policy provisions that you were referring to a second ago that Democrats are starting to put forward. But I think that the situation is very different from 2009. That was a financial crisis. This is a public health crisis. These solutions to the financial crisis were hazy. The connections between actions that Congress might take and helping people in the suffering in their real lives, that, those connections were very hazy. It was all kind of in the nature of, if we do this now, maybe it will help people like you later. And so as you lived through, as you experienced, that's why there was such a, a powerful backlash to the TARP program, which by the way, turned out to be highly successful, but was flawed. And we did see some of these problems with executive compensation and companies ne not necessarily using the money uh, for the best purposes. But this situation is different. In, in a public health crisis, there's an immediacy. People experience illness. They, they, they get people around them getting sick and dying. And there's a much closer connection between Congress wants to put cash in your hands now to keep you in your apartment, keep you in your home now. Those are the kinds of things that, that people really need. I think Democrats are really playing with fire if they try and stray too far outside uh, items that have a direct connection to the crisis. So if they want to ensure that there are no stock buybacks, there's no excessive executive compensation that comes from federal aid, I think people will get that. If they want to, and I think we should talk about this, try and protect the election in November, I think people will get that. But if they start straying outside those very directly connected lanes to the, to the current crisis, and they start going for long-term investments in the Green New Deal or anything uh, else on sort of the progressive policy wish list, it's going to be, uh, I think, highly problematic. Well, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Majority Leader Schumer and uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi issued a statement. And in it, they basically um, uh, talked about kind of fundamental democratic concerns, Democrat, uh, the concerns of the Democratic Party saying that they were united in their commitment to prioritize worker and health care concerns. They, they called on the administration to take bold action, uh, and I'm quoting, to help workers and small businesses first by greatly increasing unemployment insurance and Medicaid, making massive investments to help small businesses survive, expanding paid sick and family leave, and putting money directly into the hands of those who need it most. So from the Democratic playbook, uh, they would, they would this really for them is about targeting. I don't get the sense that, that they are 
um, uh, misunderstanding your point and trying to get grandiose about what they're putting, uh, what they're asking for. But they they are asking for uh, the federal government to expand, enhance, buttress existing programs and increasing uh, existing programs, which already target uh, those at the lower end of the income scale, target small businesses, um, and help the bulk of workers directly, as opposed to just corporations. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson co-hosting on WKXL AM and FM. We're streamed live at nhtalkradio.com, where you can binge listen to all our past shows. We're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're going to take a break. We will be back with another segment of Off the Record to talk about some of the political implications of this crisis for Americans and for the two parties that control our government. Don't go away. We'll be right back. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and co-host Matt Robeson here on WKXL AM and FM streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. And we are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, where you can listen to us day or night from anywhere you are hunkered and bunkered down during the coronavirus pandemic crisis, because that's what it is. It's a, it's a bit of a crisis. And actually, uh, this is our first show in which Matt and I are both remote. We are not in the WKXL bunker. We're experimenting with a remote broadcast, which so far seems to be working okay. We'll know more when we hear from the amazing technical people at WKXL who will tell us whether or not our efforts at uh, remote uh, radio podcasting, broadcasting are working. It's kind of fun. We're each sitting in the comfort of our homes and, uh, you know, using the interwebs to communicate. It's actually an exciting, exciting prospect. Uh, Last night, Matt, my daughter, Ariana, did a live concert, which she called a quarantine concert. So uh, there were, you know, multiple folks who checked in and watched and listened to a live coronavirus concert. And in fact, that's happening all over uh, the country as artists um, and folks in the entertainment industry are scrambling. And I have to say the entertainment industry is being particularly hard hit. Uh, Restaurants and bars have closed down. That means that musicians who make their living at the level of bars and clubs uh, are now without a living because uh, the sales of recorded music um, through streaming are are up, but the streaming revenues to artists are really small. So these days in the music business, if you know a musician, musicians make their money by live performing. Live performances are shut down. Venues are shut down. So the crisis is really brought home, uh, you know, to uh, those of us who um, at least even part-time are in the 
entertainment industry. I'm a musician. I go out and play. I, I have nowhere to go and play. I, I'm going to be doing some house concerts, some live streaming uh, pretty soon. We're working our way up to do that. And meanwhile, a lot of the younger generation who, who are really hip are doing that already. And a lot, of, a lot of musicians are doing that. But it points up the kind of impact that a crisis like this has, because every musician is really a small business person. Every musician is an entrepreneur trying to market themselves. And one of the impacts of this kind of pandemic is that it's just like a shutdown, complete, total shutdown. I've actually um, called on my members of Congress to support a designated $5 billion fund for not-for-profit um, uh, venues to be distributed to the National Endowment of the Arts, who can then, uh, hopefully, with relaxed standards, uh, distribute to uh, not-for-profits in need. Um, I'm chair of the board of a small not-for-profit on the seacoast, and um, uh, it's just over the border in, in Kittery, uh, Kittery Foreside. And, uh, you know, we're, we're having to scramble. How are we going to turn what is a small performance venue into a virtual performance venue? How are we going to support the artists who have played uh, at the at the hall? How are we going to make sure that we can survive? How long can we continue to pay uh, our executive director and our administrative assistant? And those kinds of discussions for small not-for-profits and for small entertainment venues and even for large entertainment venues are going on all over the country. So the kind of stimulus and help that the federal government is talking about are, are, are going to be absolutely crucial. One of the things uh, that I know is being uh, talked about and is uh, uh, do new provisions with the SBA to be able to make non-interest uh, loans to uh, small businesses and not-for-profits. So there is a scramble going on all over this country. And there are a lot of folks who don't know where their next paycheck is coming from. Now, this is all happening in the context of a presidential election. We are just a few months away from what was supposed to be the Democratic National Convention. We have no idea whether that will or won't happen. And we have an election for president coming up in November. Meanwhile, the Democratic presidential contest has come down to two people, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. But after the last round of um, uh, primaries uh, in three states, which Joe Biden overwhelmingly won, a lot of folks are wondering whether Bernie Sanders is going to continue. And if he does continue, why is he going to continue? And if he does continue, what is he going to extract from Joe Biden and the Democratic Party? And should he continue? Or is it time to go belly up and say we our movement accomplished a lot in terms of creating policy points for discussion in the party? We've moved the party left. We're not going away. But I recognize that Joe Biden is now the presumptive nominee. And if there ever was a time for unity in the party where one 
person could then speak as leader of the party, it ought to be now. I'm giving up and uh, giving up to Joe Biden. But Bernie so far doesn't want to do that. And I know that a lot of the people who follow Bernie and have been adamant supporters don't want him to. What does it mean for the Democrats? You know, I just wrote an article on this this week on Alternet, and I wish in retrospect that I had given it a different title. I wish I had called it How Bernie Sanders Can Win, ellipsis, by dropping out. Because I actually think that this is a moment of unparalleled opportunity for him. I mean, make no mistake, Sanders needs Biden and Biden needs Sanders. To take the last part first, Biden would definitely like Bernie Sanders to drop out. That's you know not exactly a deep political insight. Not only is there a sense that the ongoing uh, fight between Clinton and Sanders in 2016 ultimately damaged Hillary Clinton's prospects in the fall, but as you were alluding to a minute ago, the current crisis is really causing a, a, a fundamental rethink in all kinds of sectors of society about how we do things. And nowhere is this going to be more apparent than in politics, where, as you were saying, we have a national convention coming up for the Democrats and for the Republicans, by the way. And there's the fundamental question of how one goes about conducting a campaign under these circumstances, where it has to be much more virtual, much more uh, at a distance. Uh, how does one do that? Um, and, and so there are all kinds of unanswered questions that the Biden team would desperately like to start answering without having to focus half their attention on the ongoing primary process. But I think the other side of the coin, the way that Bernie Sanders should be thinking about this is not that it would be some type of capitulation, not that it would be some type of giving up, that he has been investing for a career, for decades now, in a point of view, in a direction that he thinks the country needs to move. And so far from capitulating, if he were to strike a bargain, a grand bargain with Joe Biden right now, that would be capitalization. That would be finally paying a dividend to the people who are part of what, let's just call it the Sanders movement, what they've been working for for so long. And so what I tried to think out in the alternate piece is if, if Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, who by the way, genuinely like each other, they genuinely have high regard for one another. If they were to sit down virtually and kind of hash this out, what would that look like? And how could they turn that into a real win for the Sanders movement? And I think there's an opportunity to do that. Well, there probably is. And one thing that seems to be off the table is, you know, some folks were, were ruminating. They were speculating that maybe Bernie Sanders could be Joe Biden's VP. But he's certainly of the wrong gender since the former vice president has now committed on national public on national television during the debate to choosing a woman for vice president but joe biden could certainly um uh help the whole thing by bringing bernie into an inner circle he could bring him into an inner policy circle he could explicitly uh embrace some of um, uh, Bernie Sanders' p 
policies even going beyond the recent embrace for free public colleges. I mean, he could he could make a sharp turn to the left, including in his pick for vice president, which he could negotiate with Bernie Sanders. But there is some peril for Joe Biden in making too sharp a turn to the left and in too close an embrace of Bernie Sanders, because to the extent that moderates, middle of the roaders, uh, lapsed Republicans, independents who are truly independent and who really uh, are at play in this election, uh, if that is still true, let's assume for the moment that it is, uh, if Joe Biden swings too far left, he could lose some points that he's got by virtue of his being seen as the moderate centrist. So how's he going to play that, Matt? I mean, what could he do? What can Joe Biden do? Um, since you're the great advisor, what does, what does Joe do to, what does he offer Bernie? What practical things can he do to bring Bernie into the fold and to try to make some peace with the Bernie bros, with the Bernie followers to avoid what happened in the last election? Well, I think there's a lot of options. And I think that there's a way to do it that gives real value to Sanders supporters, that makes them, that, that really gives them that dividend on all of their, their hope and work and determination that they've put in, which has been real. And by the way, I think that the Sanders movement, that the Sanders supporters can indeed take some satisfaction from the fact that, as you say, they have moved the policy agenda to the left, to the direction that they've been advocating through their advocacy, and they can feel they can feel good about that. But you know, right now, the justification that they put forward for Sanders remaining in the contest is so that he can amass more delegates and have a greater say over the party platform at the convention. Well, that's I've never heard a more ridiculous justification for something. That would be like getting a candy bar, throwing out the candy, and keeping the wrapper. The party platform amounts to absolutely zero when it comes to determining what a future president is actually going to do. Now, what they could do in a sit-down deal with Joe Biden is Biden could agree to a much more aggressive push on global warming. He could adopt some of the investments that Bernie Sanders has put forward in things like retrofitting homes and businesses, weatherization, uh, upgrades to the grid, renewables, um, electric vehicles. I tallied some of those proposals and you quickly begin to close the gap between Joe Biden's $1.7 trillion plan and Sanders' $16.3 trillion plan. You can add several trillion dollars of long-term investments that, by the way, are highly needed, justifiable, and would do a heck of a lot toward fighting global warming. And it would be a big win for Sanders supporters in their dedicated fight uh, against global warming that wouldn't harm Joe Biden. Uh, another example is the Sanders Warren wealth tax. This is wildly popular. It actually has the support of a majority of Republicans in polling. About two thirds of Americans support a wealth tax. And at this current moment of crisis where we're going to be putting trillions of dollars out to save the economy and help people with lower incomes, I think would be even more supported by a broad swath of Americans. So there's a whole bunch of options out there, including what you raised, bringing Bernie into the inner circle and giving him a real voice 
in vetting people who would be a part of a Biden administration that I think would be meaningful, I think would move the agenda, would give some real wins to the Sanders movement, would not hurt Biden in the general election, and I think would be a win-win for everyone. Well, there you have it. Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, our new off-the-record, now co-hosted by Matt Robeson, one smart guy who authors a moreperfectunionforum.com, a blog dev uh, devoted to a deeper dive into politics like the ones we've just uh, taken. Uh, and Matt also writes for alternate.org. Uh, we will be right back after a very short break to wrap up this week's edition of Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL, streamed live at NH talkradio.com uh, we are a podcast on google stitcher and itunes and this week marked the beginning of a new phase for off the record co-hosted by my good friend and smart guy a guy i rely on for all kinds of insight matt robeson matt i'm so glad to have you as a co-host on off the record it's great to be on and looking forward to doing more of it we will do more. We took a dive into the coronavirus and some of its political implications and what the policy means. Uh, it's kind of time for head scratching. Democrats are pushing help for uh, the small folks and Republicans are pushing help for the big corporations. Somewhere the twain may need in time to actually help the country. We talked about the political implications of the current Democratic race for President of the United States. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL AM and FM. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record. <laughs>